Morning Glory and Evening Grace America. It's Hugh Hewitt at the end of an extraordinary week of interviews. It's time to step back and take a big view, which is what I do every single week on a Hillsdale Dialogue with either Dr. Larry Aaron, the president of Hillsdale College, or one of his wonderful colleagues. Today, Dr. Paul Ray is back. He is a political historian. His website is Paul A. Ray, R-A-H-E dot com, by the way. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues, including many in the past with Dr. Ray, are available at hugh4hillsdale.com. And all of Hillsdale's offerings are available at hillsdale.edu, including the opportunity to sign up for Imprimus, their free speech digest, which you absolutely should be getting. Dr. Ray, great to have you back. Thank you for uh, joining me this week. Oh, it's a pleasure. You know, I, uh, Dr. Ryan could not be available, so we're taking a break from Lincoln. And I asked him, who could I talk to about what I talked to Donald Trump on Wednesday, the authoritarian temptation that happens in republics when they collapse into uh, despotism and authoritarianism? And he said, well, that would, your man would be Ray. And uh, so he, he, he nominated you. But then he told me, you got a new book coming out on Sparta as well. So let's put a plug in for that, at least. What, what are you writing about Sparta? Well, it's coming out. Uh, technically, it's released on 24 November, but it's up on Amazon now. And it's called The Grand Strategy of Classical Sparta, The Persian Challenge. Uh, and it's about, uh, in the abstract, it's about the relationship between foreign policy and domestic concerns. Uh, and my argument, uh, again, in the abstract, is that regimes matter that you can have a geopolitical situation that might favor um, two different polities cooperating with one another, but that regime differences and regime hostilities uh, often get in the way, uh, as happened uh, during the Cold War, as happened uh, uh, during World War II, where regime differences mattered. It mattered that, that Nazi Germany was Nazi. Uh, that Great Britain and the United States were democracies. It mattered that the Soviet Union was communist, uh, that Great Britain and France and the United States and West Germany were democracies. Uh, and it mattered that, uh, in, in classical antiquity, it mattered that the regime of Xerxes was a religiously dri- driven regime uh, oriented towards the conquest of the world under Zoroastrian auspices, uh, and that they simply had to be aggressive with regard to the Greeks because there were imperatives built into the, the very nature of the polity uh, that gave rise to a deep hostility between the Greeks and the Persians over the issue of liberty. And, and, and the Persians uh, invade. And, I, and Dr. Aron mentioned to me, you kind of consider this to be the first uh, attack from the Middle East into the classical West. Yes. And, and it's like a jihad. That is to say, the motive is religious, uh, and the aim is to establish a universal monarchy uh, in which the king is the viceroy of a universal god. Uh, this is the first time that's happened in human history. So it's How did the Greeks react to that? Story. Did, did, did the Greeks understand that as, as a theological challenge as well as a political, you know, just a struggle for territory and turf? Yes, you can see that in Herodotus, in, in his account of the religious differences and of the, uh, the outlook of Xerxes, that, that he, he wants to be in a world where the sun, uh, the, the, wherever the sun shines, he rules. Uh, and that's 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 religiously driven, and so they know this. 
Uh, and you look, it's a really remarkable story because the the Persian Empire uh, may have been the greatest empire in human history in the sense huh. that it dominated a larger proportion of the world's population than any subsequent empire. Think of it in this way. In, in antiquity, the only places where population is dense are the great river valleys, the Nile River Valley, the Tigris and Euphrates, the Indus River, and the Yellow River in China. Xerxes ruled three of these four river valleys. So, you know, if, if you judge uh, by absolute power, no, Persia is not as great as the United States is today. But if you judge it in terms of the number of people, the proportion of the world's population they ruled, and the proportion of the world's resources they had, uh, it's astonishing. And then you look at the Athenians. Um, in 480, there are 30,000 adult male Athenians. 30,000. Huh. That's it. Uh, at the Spartans, there are 8,000 adult male Spartans. And so what is it used to fighting one another? Yeah. They've never cooperated. Uh, and, and cooperation's almost beyond their reach. And yet they pull themselves together and they defeat this colossus. And not only do they defeat it in the Persian Wars, they hold it at bay for a good long time thereafter. And eventually, using the techniques developed by the ancient Greek cities in warfare, Alexander the Great conquers the Persian Empire. And you get Greek cities in Afghanistan. I mean, real yeah, Greek wh- cities in Afghanistan with philosophers visiting them. When this book comes out, we're going to have to spend a Hillsdale Dialogue talking about it. I mean, that's fascinating to me. And, and we can go backwards as well as forwards in the Hillsdale Dialogue. We've always moved chronologically forward, but now we'll go back to the beginning. But Dr. Ray, help me set up my subject. Uh, Donald Trump is appealing to a very large group of people in America right now. And I asked him, point blank, do you, do you think you're tickling the authoritarian temptation that we've seen throughout history? And I didn't violate... Godwin's law by going to the to the regime of the last century that was so evil. I just pointed to Caesar and Napoleon and and a lot of the bad regimes of the last century that didn't go that far. Just, you know, tough times in democracies bring on this desire for a man on a white horse. How deeply rooted is that in history? And why did it begin in the Roman Republic? Uh, The Roman case is complicated. Uh, And it, it may not the analogy may not work perfectly, although. Let me push it a little bit. Uh, There are two things that brought down the Roman Republic. The most important of them was overextension. That is to say, it grew beyond the capacity of a republic to govern. You know, it it, it dominates the entire Mediterranean basin. It dominates the the Atlantic coast uh, and inland from the Atlantic coast to the Rhine River. Uh, it, it eventually will dominate Britain and so forth, but not, not at this particular time. I mean, Caesar does visit Britain, but he doesn't conquer it. Uh, it dominates all the way to the Tigris and Euphrates Basin. So it's, it's simply huge. And, uh, you know, it, Montesquieu, who studied this carefully and, and, and wrote a little book called uh, uh, Considerations on the Causes of the Greatness of the Romans and Their Decline, he put his finger on it. The institutions of the ancient republic, which were quasi-direct democracies, um, you know, this is modified slightly in the Roman case by the Senate, uh, which is an oligarchic institution. But, you know, big decisions are made, uh, the elections of the magistrates and so forth, in mass assemblies. 
uh, it can't function very well in, in, in this regard. And, and look, the ancient republics are built on militias. That is to say, they're built on denying the distinction between citizen, between civilian and soldier. Every citizen is a civilian, and every citizen is a soldier. Uh, what happens is when you get a massive empire, you have to have people who specialize in war. You have to have standing huh. armies. And you can't have standing armies of civilians because these, these people can't maintain their farms while they're serving in the military on the Tigris and Euphrates River or in the military in Spain or in the military in North Africa. Uh, and so it's mercenary armies, essentially, that destroy the Roman Republic. That's what Caesar does. He appeals to his army against the people who are in control at Rome. But he, had, he, he represented the popular party, didn't he? He represented the, 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 the people who were dispossessed, largely. Well, let's put it this way. He took advantage of them. Um, yes. Representing them as strong. He, you know, he's a patrician. He's from the most ancient of, of, of you know, there's kind of various layers of aristocracy at Rome. And the patricians go back to the very beginning. Uh, what he does is he takes the side of those at Rome itself uh, who want um, to freeload. Uh, you know, the well, other problem uh, is the great empire produces enormous wealth, and it corrupts uh, the people, especially the people in the cities. Well, that that, that does uh, diverge from modern analogy. We come back from break, we'll pick it up there, because that is, in fact, very, very different, isn't it, yes, Dr. It is. Ray? From, yes, uh, it is. Uh, so he was representing people who wanted to use the wealth of the empire, not those who resented the use of the wealth of the empire. That's right. Okay, when we come back, we'll talk about the authoritarian temptation and what Napoleon differs from Caesar and the modern authoritarians, whether it's Juan Perón in Argentina or Franco in Spain. Again, I'm not going to violate Godwin's law here and go to the Third Reich because that's uh, uh, its own evil case without parallel. I'll be right back with Dr. Ray. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. minutes after the hour, America, it's the weekly dive deep into history and philosophy and everything that is ultimately uh, recorded in the great works of Western literature from the Hillsdale Dialogue series that now dates three years here on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Dr. Paul Ray is back with me, member of the faculty at Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale, available at hillsdale.edu. And all of our dialogues, you can binge listen if you'd like to for three years, are available at hugh4hillsdale.com. Dr. Ray, we went to break. We are talking about Caesar. And, of course, I put forward the theory to Donald Trump earlier this week. And I did it right to him. I said, you know, some people are going to say you're playing to the desire for a tough man in tough times. And we see that repeatedly. Republics give into that over history. But you're saying that's not Caesar. Is it Napoleon? Or maybe you want to expand on the Caesarism. Um, I don't think it's Napoleon either. Uh, Napoleon, you know, the model for Napoleon is, uh, in a way, it's Caesar, in a way, it's Oliver Cromwell. You know, Edmund Burke looks at the situation in 1789, uh, especially when they begin to move away from legality. Uh, and he'd been favorable to the French Revolution up to a certain point. And then he thought, oh, my God, they're going to repeat what happened in England between um, 1640 and 1660. And he, he said it's going to end in a military dictatorship, and it did. 
the key there is you have a revolutionary situation and uh, you end up with revolutionary wars. And in uh, a wartime situation, men of supreme talent, uh, often very ruthless men, come to power. So that's and what... So why is that? What, what is it... What is it that is it the desire for order out of chaos that allows the most ruthless to try? Because there are a lot of ruthless people running around Rome. I mean, Sulla preceded Caesar, and there were a lot of ruthless people running around Paris in the revolution, off with their heads, people. So what is it that that allows one to use the means of democracy to become or, or crypto democracy to become the number one guy? Well, you know, look, when you have prolonged wars, armies have a way of becoming loyal to their leaders. Uh, that's what happened in Rome. Uh, the armies off in distant places looked to their generals to provide for them when they came back home. Uh, and so they became the tools of those generals. Uh, that's more or less what happened with the new model army. Um, they had a leader. He was a fabulous general, one of the greatest in human history. And when other other um, then that's Cromwell. You'll have to explain failed, that it fell into his lap, and that's they, that's what happened with Napoleon. The new model army. Uh, you have to explain that to people because that that might go, that's definitely going over the heads of the Steelers fans, Doctor Ray. Yeah. Okay. Uh, look, the the old armies of Europe are based upon um, cavalry. They're based upon knights on horseback. And beginning in the time of Machiavelli, people begin to rethink the possibility of reestablishing the primacy of infantry. Uh, one of those who inherits that movement to reestablish the primacy of infantry is Oliver Cromwell. And uh, his new model army is new modeled in part because they throw all the politicians out. Huh. Except him. Huh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And it's done and he was, they don't want the army politicized, but they leave one guy in there who is both a member of, of the Long Parliament and uh, the leader of the army, and they leave him in there because they desperately need him. And he's also a very, very good general. Oh. He, he knew war. He was, and they was probably superb. would have lost without him. You know, yeah. in other words, and that's true of Napoleon as well. You, you, so you're saying every one of these circumstances are unique unto themselves, that we, can't, we cannot extrapolate some unique flaw in democracy that inevitably over centuries yields to this? No, I don't think it works that way. I think you've got to look at, in the case of uh, Caesar, in the case of uh, Cromwell, in the case of Napoleon, you've got to look at... Um, representative government or forms of democratic government or something like that uh, that are inadequate to the situation that the country faces. And you have the emergence of a man of undeniable military skill, enormous military skill, and of political savvy. Uh, All three of them are extraordinary. But also, it it in a way gets forced on him. Oliver Cromwell really didn't want to end up where he ended up. And Uh, Washington is the same guy, but he turns it down. Yes. And he also participates in an attempt to quiet the turmoil. That is to say, uh, to bring the revolution to completion through the establishment of a constitution that would be adequate to the needs of the country. Uh, 
So, you know, he does two things. He, he sidesteps becoming uh, a Cromwell and a Napoleon, and he does so knowing perfectly well about Cromwell and Napoleon and having thought about it. That's the first thing he does, and he does it ostentatiously, and he emphasizes the primacy of civilian government. The trouble was the civilian government to which he surrendered his powers was inadequate. Uh, and so the next stage takes place about five, six years later, is the American Constitutional Convention. And what does he do? He agrees to go. Very important. He, he puts his, his prestige behind it, and he chairs it. And he's then the one who conveys the document to the Continental Congress to be sent on to the states for ratification. So and then he not only did he govern on establishing a government in which he will be unnecessary. Man, but when he does take up the presidency, and I've often read arguments that this would not have been ratified had not Washington been looming to be the first president, he lives within its strictures. Yes, and he, he only does two terms. Yeah. Um, and he so would that, to have gotten out after one term, but he looks at the situation uh, in Europe and the developing troubles and, and the impact that European, the French Revolution is going to have in America, and he thinks, okay, four more years. So what, I, what I'm coming to is, is I've been watching the steady deterioration of constitutional practice over uh, 20 years and thinking it's Roman Revolution-esque and that President Obama simply thrown off the Constitution in so many places, ignored it, right? Just ignored it. Yeah. So I asked Donald Trump, people are going to accuse you of being an authoritarian. Will you live by the rules? He said, absolutely. President Obama is not living by the rules. Very reassuring. But do you worry about this evolution in, in means that is underway? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, tremendously. Um, it, it, it's, let me draw an analogy with the Roman Republic. It's, it's not quite the same, but there's this similarity. We are now in a situation where uh, the form of government that we have, I'm not talking about the real Constitution. I'm talking about what, the way we run our country which departs radically from the Constitution, is inadequate to our circumstances. And it's inadequate in the following way. You cannot centralize government over a territory as large as our territory and actually have legislative supremacy. And the reason is the details of running the show over so large an area is greater than Congress can manage and so what do you hold hold on that thought i gotta go to break i'll be be right back with dr ray what happens when we reach that situation it's the hilltale dialogue stay tuned (music) 34 minutes after the hour america hugh hewitt on the hilltale dialogue this week with dr paul ray Uh, dr arn is away we will resume our lincoln talk next week dr ray when we went to break you were saying As you look at our constitutional republic today, uh, we've centralized power beyond the capacity of the centralized power to actually use it effectively. Yes. Um, uh, Or another way of putting it is it's not beyond the capacity of the centralized power, because if you had a dictatorship, you could be effective. Um, It's beyond the capacity of the legislative power. And the reason is it's too big. It's too complicated. And so from the Roosevelt administration on, we have set up executive agencies 
Congress has ceded to them rulemaking power. They make rules that have the force of law, meaning it has given up the legislative power to them. This has concentrated enormous power in the hands of presidents. And this particular president has shown what you can do with that power. And he has shown that he can work around Congress and he can work around the courts. Ignoring so what the spirit is- of their decisions and doing what he wants to do. And it's very hard to stop him. So, so the analogy... We're, we're evolving into an executive dictatorship. So is the analogy to the Roman Republic good or bad? Well, the Roman situation's not the same, but it is also the case that the government that they had was no longer adequate uh, to the size of their empire. So here's where the analogy works, and this is something Montesquieu points out. Uh, It's very hard to sustain a republic on an extended territory. The Founding Fathers' answer to that challenge is to put most government in the hands of the state. Now, there was all the police powers and almost all the regulatory powers, and you have a central government of limited purpose aimed mainly at foreign policy, which the states can't do for themselves, uh, and also aimed at interstate, not commerce inside a state, but commerce between the states, because otherwise you'll have squabbles over tariffs between Pennsylvania and New York and so forth. That limited government at the federal level worked well. But with the uh, progressives, and in particular with the New Deal and the Great Society, uh, and, uh, you know, Obama calls his government the New Foundation. It tells you a lot, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, uh, With all of that and with the expansion of the scope of the federal government and detailed regulation of all sorts of aspects of our lives, Congress can't debate these issues. There isn't time. So what it does is it writes a vague law, and it cedes power to executive agencies. And the executive agencies are ultimately dominated by the president who picks the people who run them. And And mediocrity breeds what I have here in Colorado, which is a yellow river, right? Uh, It it breeds an EPA administrator who had been the mayor of Boulder and served in a political White House and had absolutely no idea what he was doing when he authorized this thing. And that replicates itself, and then people get angrier. So there's a cycle... Uh, we got about a minute to the break. Where do you where do you see this going? And do you think do you think the rhetoric of the campaign thus far is adequate to the problems we face? No, 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 it's not adequate at all. I mean, uh, nobody, uh, Trump included, and I don't think much of Trump, but uh, none of the candidates thus far have articulated the problem very well. Uh, and the reason is they're try- all trying to avoid making mistakes uh, that will cost them popular support. Uh, and they don't discuss the crucial issues, which is the administrative state. No one is discuss- no one's suggesting that we take this thing apart and we, we send these powers back where they belong to the states so that people in local areas uh, can, can run their own lives. Uh, instead, now, what we have are administrative agencies at the, at the center of things over which we have no control. You know, look at that EPA business. Is anyone going to be sued? Is anyone going to go to prison? Is anyone accountable in any way for that blunder? If it was done well, by a private entity, there would be people in prison and, and there would be huge lawsuits. 
Well, there will be lawsuits by the people injured against the federal government. So you and I, Paul Ray, and everyone listening will pay for that. And they yeah. will actually be recompensed out of the, uh, the judgment fund in the Department of Justice. It happens all the time whenever the federal government screws up someone's property. But, but no one will get fired. No one's been fired. It's remarkable. Right. <laughs> it, we don't <laughs> have accountable, responsible government anymore. When we come back from break, I'm going to talk with Dr. Paul Ray about the rhetoric of this campaign, because I think he articulated something there that if any of the campaigns are listening and actually they all listen to every single broadcast, um, they might want to think long and hard about saying, don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. Dr. Paul Ray of Hillsdale College continues in our conversation about and one the campaign should be listening to what we learned from history and what was going to happen going forward on the authoritarian temptation. Stay with us. Forty-four minutes after the hour, America, one of those rare Hillsdale dialogues where we make the obvious connection between the history and the philosophy and the political science that we study each week audibly on the Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arna, one of his colleagues. This week, Dr. Paul Ray, whose website is paulray.com, about um, what is happening in the United States and what's happened previously in other republics when they've collapsed and they've gotten out of control. So, Dr. Ray, before we went to break, you said... No one's articulated the problem, and that, that is that we do not return to the state's governing authority. If someone did that, and of course the natural candidate to do that would be a governor, it would be Walker or Christie or, or Kasich, um, Trump is not articulating that. I haven't heard Graham articulate that. I haven't heard uh, anyone actually articulate this very well yet. Um, how would you have them phrase it? What would you have them appeal without fear or favor to the people on? Well... I would have them look at things that have happened over the last six and a half years, uh, the IRS business. Uh, I would have them point to ways in which the federal government has become unaccountable uh, and has become a political tool of a single party or a single partisan impulse. I would ask them the following. Should uh, the manner in which colleges and universities all over the United States in localities uh, deal with student misconduct be dictated by the Department of Education in Washington? Or can't they govern themselves? Hmm. I would ask them, why should the federal government in Washington dictate in fine detail our medical insurance, can't that be done locally? Wouldn't it be better if it were done locally with an eye to local conditions, local peculiarities, and would it not be more consistent with self-government if it was done in the localities where we actually know the people who represent us? Now, Dr. You know, we, Ray, in... we, we experience Washington as an alien force. Um, but has it has it ever successfully been made to give back power, the centralizing government? I'm talking about yes. not Washington here, but yes, yes, in yes. history. Where? Yes. Thomas Jefferson and James Madison did just that when they overcome John, overcame John Adams and Alexander Hamilton in 1800. Oh, interesting. Yes, uh, so within our wrong. own republic, they made that argument that they were centralizing and they had to give back. Oh, absolutely. And, and it was made, uh, I don't have the quotation ready to hand, but 
the analysis that I'm giving you was laid out in uh, 1792 by James Madison in his criticism of the program uh, advanced by Alexander Hamilton as Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, and the theme of it was everything gets concentrated in a government that is invisible and at a distance from the distance from the people, uh, an alien government. Uh, and these things need to be left to the states. Now, I happen to think I'm actually with Hamilton at, uh, on, on the particular issues at the time. So am I. I'm a big, big free trader in Bank of America and road builder. You bet. So. Yeah. No, I, I'm with him. But the argument that Madison articulated uh, in, in the, the party press essays of, of, 19, of 1792 applies to the world we live in in the most remarkable way. In other words, the danger he saw was not really a danger from the Hamiltonian program, but it, it was a danger. But, but the exception is this. When they made their arguments, they made their arguments to a, a voting class that was intensely interested and well-read and had attention spans. Uh, and I think it's the attention span that actually is the big difference now. Uh, uh, we uh, talked about this with Dr. Arn in the Lincoln-Douglas debates lasting three hours. You know, this yeah. radio show is three hours, the average time spent listening. And I'm remarkable. I have, the, like, the longest TSL time spent listening of anybody. And it's still under a half an hour because people get in their cars, they drive home, they get out of their cars, and they, they go back about their business. Twitter's 140 characters. How in the world can you make an argument like that? You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I can tell you this. Radio, which you're involved with, uh, is suited to extended arguments. We're having one right now, and people are sure. listening to it, and they're thinking sure. about it. Uh, television is not. Agreed. Uh, television is about the visual, uh, and the visual is about the emotional. Speech can appeal to the emotions, but it often appeals to reason as well. The visual can only appeal to the emotions. And so the, the world of spectacle uh, is a world in which you cannot have long arguments articulated. Everything has to be in what's called a sound bite. Uh, well, in fact, if you, you watch the... You need to know. Did you watch the Trump press conference on Tuesday night? No, I don't have a uh, television. Uh, well, they, so you, you missed There's a spectacle. There's liberation in that if you have children. Yeah, you, you, you missed a spectacle. Uh, Donald Trump arguing with Jorge Ramos of Univision back and forth, not really talking with each other, but talking past each other. It was riveting television, right? I watched yeah. the whole thing a second time because it was intense, real drama between uh, people in genuine conflict as opposed to rehearsed pretend stuff. Uh, but it, it, what you're arguing is that's emotional, not rational. And that certainly isn't how the Federalists and the Jeffersonians went about their arguments. No, if they got on radio, it might be quite different, because I think radio forces you into articulating an argument. There's only the words. That's all you've got. Uh, you know, I'm going um, tomorrow morning. I'm going to Stratford, Ontario, to the Shakespeare Festival. Oh, There's all good the choice. difference in the world between seeing Hamlet on stage and seeing it in a movie. Uh, and the difference is, on stage, it's the words that count. It's not the spectacle at all. They could have no costumes at all, and if they were good actors and they delivered the words in the proper way, the play would be mesmerizing. But if it's done in a movie, it's all got to be spectacle, and the words are subordinated to the visual. 
Oh, well put. What are you seeing at the Stratford Festival? Um, we're going to see Hamlet. We're going to see Love's Labor's Loss. We're going to see Pericles, Prince of Tyre, which I've never seen. And they have a festival theater there, which is huge and has all this equipment and so forth. And then they do, uh, in something called the Tom Patterson, they do plays in a very small venue that, that, that might have been an automobile shop. I can't quite tell. <laughs> Enjoy so your, your vacation. Professor Smith must be very, very jealous at Hillsdale. Uh, Paul Ray, Dr. Paul Ray, as always, thank you. What an edifying hour. I'll be right back. America to wrap up this week of Hugh Hewitt Show.